listener. My mother's words keep ringing in my ears. It's better to be kind than right. Our egos get out of control sometimes when we're having arguments and you're just wanting to win the argument and go, even if you're not right, you just determined to win it. And you've got to actually step back and go, is this going to matter in five years? Really? Is this going to matter in five minutes? Like, again, let it go. It also makes you step back for a minute. Does it matter? Really? Does it matter? Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Rebecca Gibney is one of our most loved and respected actors. She's been a permanent fixture on our big and small screens. Now she has this warmth, authenticity, and a twinkle in her eye that really draws you in. Rebecca is starring in the series Prosper, which is streaming on Stan at the moment. I absolutely loved it. Now, Rebecca dialed into the podcast studio from her home in New Zealand. And while we were setting up, chatting and checking the audio levels on the mic, I was already calling her Beck. This is the first time that we've met, but Beck has this ability to put you at ease and feel like you've known her forever. I can't wait to share this very special chat with you. Before we get started, a gentle warning, our conversation touches on suicide. First of all, let me just say, I'm so excited to be talking to you. Oh, thanks. I feel like I know you, even though we haven't actually ever officially met. Same. Absolutely. Same. But there's something that I think is really special about you, Beautiful, because you have this this real warmth and authenticity and sunshine that just comes through you. And so that's why I think I feel like I know you. And I I think it's like so many Aussies and people just generally feel like, yes, we're mates. We know you. Oh, that's lovely. You know what? That's probably why I just, I'm so grateful because I have an audience that's followed me ever since, I, you know, the old days. <laughs> Call it the old days because like the 80s, for most people is the old days. I, I still think it was like 10 years ago, but uh, I've got so many people that have support me and they watch Flying Doctors and All Together Now and Halifax. And so I'm just, you know, I'm so grateful. I guess the older I get, the more grateful I get because I think, you know, as we all get older, you start losing friends, you start losing family, you start recognising how important every day is. So I just, um, I'm so grateful when people say things like that. I just go, well, that's from my mum too, you know, trying to, put the positive words out there, you know. There's enough misery in the world, so if I can make someone feel a bit happier, that's good. Well, you do, just looking at that beautiful kind of face of yours and the smile and and the twinkle in your eye, because I reckon (laughs) you are a cheeky chops. I'm huge cheeky chops. I'm the youngest of six kids, so I grew up being a cheeky chops. I was always a brat. (laughs) My sister says I was a brat, but I always got away with it as well because I was spoiled rotten, so... (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm the naughty one. In fact, if ever I tell my friends that I'm doing Dry July or I'm, you know, they're all like, no, you can't because <laughs> I'm the one that's always the, let's have a margarita and let's dance on the tabletops. You know, I probably should tone that down a bit as I get older, but, you know, it is just me. 
What I love about getting older, because I'll be, what, 54 this year, is I care less about what people think. And very much that seems to strike me. That's your mantra as well, isn't it? Absolutely. You know what? Because I think I had such deep insecurities in my 20s and my teens and my 20s, deeply, deeply insecure. And I was a constant people pleaser, even into my 30s, really. It wasn't until I had my nervous breakdown, I guess you'd call it, that I saw a a therapist who for the next two years was able to help build me back up to being the person that I actually started to like. What I realised is that I, I measured my success or my whatever by everyone else. And the minute I stopped doing that, it, it actually made perfect sense. And I was able to start looking at myself as a child, like looking at the child that didn't get the attention from my dad, and I started doing it for myself. So if I felt like an ice cream, I'd have it, or if I felt like whatever, which I still t- to this day continue to do. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't worry about what people say sometimes. I'm also very sensitive. So if someone says something horrible or I read something horrible, it still hurts me. I still go, why would they say that? They obviously don't know me. But it's more war off a duck's back these days. It's more like, I know I'm a good person. So if anyone else doesn't, that's their issue. It is, it's their problem. Now, there's a lot to talk about there that you've raised. First of all, you mentioned that you were deeply insecure as a young person, in what way and why was that, do you think? I think some of it stems back from my childhood because I did have a very difficult childhood in the sense that my dad was a a violent alcoholic, so I grew up in a very dysfunctional family environment. Luckily, you know, mum did her absolute best, but when it came to instilling or having strong male figures around me. I didn't really have that. I had my brothers, but they kind of left early. So I was still, when I was still growing up, I didn't have strong male influences. And I think that really affected me. So when I got into my teens, I was constantly searching for that male attention, I guess, that male acceptance. And also, I think I I was such a tomboy, but I grew breasts at 14. I hated them. I mean, I was constantly covering it up. I wanted to be, I think I wanted to be a boy, really. I was, I was a tomboy. And mum sent me to deportment school. And all of a sudden, I worked out how to put makeup on and people started to take notice when I put makeup on. I went, oh, okay, so if I create this character, that's going to get more acceptance. But it's a rod for your back because when you take it off, you look in the mirror and you go, oh, I'm just plain. I'm just ordinary. I'm just a nobody. And because I also didn't train to be an actor, I, it was, imposter syndrome was massive for me in my 20s. I kept thinking, they're going to find out I have no idea what I'm doing. They're going to find out I'm faking it. Everyone's going to realise that I'm not an actor. I'm just this ordinary human. And so I, that sort of stayed with me for a long time. And you see, another thing that I think is so special about you, Beck, is that you're open. You share so much of your life with us. And by doing that, it makes, I know for our listeners, they hear that and they might be going through something similar themselves and they think, oh, hey, there is a way through this. So you give people not only permission to talk about really hard things that are difficult to talk about, but you give them hope, you give them a way to see, hey, if Beck's done that, then I can. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it was very... It was a very difficult time in my 20s in the sense that on the one hand, I had this incredible career, great friends, wonderful family, but inside I didn't 
feel any of that. My self-loathing was so great because of my imposter syndrome. I never felt good enough. I never felt thin enough. I remember being told when I was 17, when I was doing a bit of modeling and a photographer said to me, if you lost five kilos, you could do really well. And I think some people don't realize when they say stuff like that, even, you know, someone going, oh, you're a bit chubby, you're a bit cuddly or whatever. The impact that that has on, particularly on young women, but now men as well, it it really stayed with me for a very long time. So I was constantly thinking, I'm just not good enough, not thin enough, not pretty enough. My hair's too thin. This is, you know, I, I never recognized that I'm this unique individual until I got into my 30s and started going, actually, wait a second, there's no one like me. And so what if I've got a belly? And so what if I've got thin hair and whatever? That's why I think it's important on social media that I do go, you know, if you see me with a lot of hair, it's fake. <laughs> if you see me looking particularly skinny, I've got I've got spanks on because I have got, you know, I've got a muffin top um, or the fake lashes or, you know, I've got bags under my eyes, I have got wrinkles. <laughs> It's like, it's not real, it's all pretend. I think it's important that we dispel that, that we, we let people realise that there's very few people in the world that look like they do on magazine covers. I mean, there might be a few, but there's not any. No one does. No. And again, by your beautiful warmth and authenticity, you give people permission to exhale and go, oh, hey, it's okay, I am enough. I want to talk a bit more about when you mentioned that imposter syndrome, because that I think, I don't know why as women, we let that voice in our heads question. When I was watching This Is Your Life and your lovely friend Kerry Armstrong revealed a story when she said that before you decided to do Halifax, that you were saying to her, I don't think I can do this. I'm not up to this. Oh, totally. I mean, the weird thing is it came from a joke because I was doing a show called Stowey with uh, Roger Simpson and I remember saying to him one day, why don't you write me something? You know, I was a giggle. And then he and Roger LeMessurier, they took me out for lunch one day and they said, actually, we've come up with this show and they they presented it to me and I went, friends at Psychiatrist, I think I was about 28 or 29 at the time and I went, wait, and I went away and did research and went, they're all like in their 30s or 40s or 50s, I can't. And also the depth of the role, I just didn't think I was, there was no way that I was capable of playing that. And I look back at early episodes now and I go, yeah, I was right. I I wasn't very, (laughs) I was more concerned about presenting an image than I actually doing, and I worked so hard, but I I just, yeah, I, I think I messed it up. Now, when we did the reboot 20 years later, I was like, okay, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready to do it. And I loved it. It was awesome because I actually felt like, okay, I can fill this woman's shoes. And that's the sad, you know, that's the other thing about ageing. You sort of go, gosh, I, it is true. I wish I knew back then this. I wish I had this sense of self back then because it would have made a huge difference to not so much to how I presented to the world, but just to me personally, how I would have felt about myself. I mean, of course, it's that wonderful sort of benefit of hindsight, but I think we have to go through the hard stuff to yeah. then realise, don't we? And yeah. and you did go through some really hard stuff. Again, you've revealed how, I think you're on a plane coming back from Saint-Tropez and you were really having terrible panic attacks. You'd been filming and you really thought, oh my goodness, what's going on? Yeah, I was actually, I was in Cannes, 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 I don't never, never know how to pronounce it. I was at the television festival actually with Halifax 
promoting Halifax and uh, my marriage had broken up, my first marriage had broken up and I was on a plane in Nice at Nice Airport. We were sitting on the runway and we were stuck there for about half an hour. It was really hot. And I was sitting with Roger LeMessurier and I started having this massive panic attack. He was one of the producers of Halifax and so much so that they had to bring an oxygen tank to me and I was on oxygen. And then we flew to Heathrow and I got sent to a health uh, like straight to a, a, like a doctor that was at Heathrow Airport because I was due to fly back to Australia. And I went, I can't do it, I can't. I was massive panic attack. <laughs> and the doctor's taking notes and he's going, and what do you do for a living? And I'm going, I'm an actress, but I'm not acting. This isn't an act. <laughs> but he prescribed um, some Valium for me. It took four and a half Valium to get me from London Heathrow back to Australia because every time it started to wear off, the panic attacks, they were coming thick and fast. I thought I was losing my mind. And then when we landed, Roger LeMessurier handed me a card and said, go and see this woman. And she saved my life because I developed agoraphobia. I couldn't leave the house without taking Valium. It was just awful. I felt like I was going insane. And at one point, I contemplated suicide. I contemplated, I'm ending it all. Even started writing a letter to mum to say goodbye. And that's what stopped me because I actually went, oh, here I go again, people pleasing. <laughs> How am I going to... You know, what, what's mum going to think if I do this? What's my family going to think? What are my friends going to I can't do it. I can't do it, even though I was in so much pain. And thank God I, I sought um, help from this woman who just saved my life, really. Thank you for sharing that in that way. I think for so many people who've been in a position like that, it is terrifying. And you do feel like you are losing your mind. But again, Beck, by you sharing, it shows that there is hope, that there is a way through. Oh, absolutely. You know, there might be people listening who are thinking, I'm worried about someone or I'm really struggling. Is there something that you could say that would be of help? Do you know what? There's always someone there to help you. There is always someone to talk to. There is, whether it's a, a family member or a friend or a doctor or there's someone that you can talk to, you can find help. But also I think at, uh, my biggest problem was my self-loathing. I kept not accepting who I was. And what I was able to do through the therapy was actually being able to sit with myself and try and remind myself of the child inside. And I think we forget about the kid. As we get older, we forget that we still have this kid inside who is screaming to be acknowledged and is screaming for help. We have to sit with that and go, okay, what does this child need? The child might need to just cry for three hours. Doesn't matter. Get it out. Write in a journal. If you don't have anyone to talk to, write it down. Speak it out in a microphone. Get it out of your head. Um, and don't be ashamed about getting help from a doctor. Antidepressants are a really good thing, but I wouldn't go on them without getting help with that. I think you need to talk to someone because I think we're also self-medicating to a point where, you know, you're getting handed pills, but you're not actually dealing with the root cause of what it is. And I think most of us are empathetic humans and we're sensitive, particularly with what's going on in the world today. There's a sense of helplessness. We can't, what can we do? I'm like that. I'm sitting there going, what can I do? I need to do something to try and fix it. My therapist was, one of the best things she ever said to me was, who died and made you God? When was it your job to fix everybody's problems? You can start with yourself and the minute you get yourself to a place where you are happy and content, then you can start looking at helping. You'll never be able to fix everybody. Just fix yourself first. 
That was a long-winded answer to your question, wasn't it? You know what? It is not. That is a beautiful answer. And it's so wise. They're such wise words. And I think, too, you're talking about getting in touch with your inner child and finding that again. When you're a little girl and growing up, there was a lot that couldn't enable you to be a little girl because of what was happening at home. That's right. That's happened with a lot of people, male and female. I think you stifle emotions. You end up sitting on things and they can manifest in physical sickness. They can manifest obviously in mental illness, but you go and see a doctor when you break your arm. Same thing needs to happen with your mental health. I mean, the suicide rate, particularly young people, is on the rise and we need them to know that, that there is a way out and there is hope and there is goodness in the world. I often say, get off social media, stop watching the news, get out into nature, go and ground yourself, go and stand on the grass, look at the sky, hug a tree, remind yourself that the world, the natural world is actually here and it's really beautiful. And yes, there are bad people doing really evil things in the world at the moment, but you need to look after your mental health first. And then go and protest, you know, write letters to your government, donate to organisations, do your bit, but look after yourself first. It's vital. Yes, it is. And so you looked after yourself, you went to the doctor and you did the work. You did that hard work because it's not easy. For many of us, you can sort of, you know, push it away, push it away, put it in a box, do other sorts of things to distract you, but it is hard work. And clearly you've done that work because look at where you are now and the beautiful woman that you continue to be. Yeah, I think also the other thing that I I have, the best piece of advice that I was given was once you have done the work, then let it go. Even stuff that happens yesterday, I do not hold on to it at all. I do not carry a grudge. I do not dislike anyone. I mean, there's people in the world at the moment that I'm not, you know, that I go, wow. But I don't know them personally, but they're doing some pretty despicable things. I do not carry grudges. I I don't live back in the past because we don't, that's gone and we don't have tomorrow. So I know it's, you know, everyone says the present, that it's a gift. That's all we have. We have this moment. That's it. I'm not focusing on tomorrow or next week. I'm talking to you. That's all I have. So, and that makes it way more interesting and special. And it also takes the pressure off because if you are able to let go of that and not worry too much about that, you can really enjoy this. (laughs) Does that make sense? (laughs) Oh, it makes wonderful sense. As you tell me that, I'm smiling, looking at you, nodding, agreeing, (laughs) because it is so true. We have to make it matter. I say that, I've got two teenage daughters. I say that to my girls all the time. It's today. Let's work on what's happening right now and enjoy right now. You talk about your family, your beautiful boy, Zach, who is also an actor, which I just think is sensational. But initially you weren't quite as keen, were you, on him being an actor? No. Well, no, because he was born in Tasmania and the first five years he was in love with Steve Irwin. He wanted to be a crocodile hunter and then he wanted to be a marine biologist and then he wanted to be a zookeeper. He was right into the whole wanting to look after animals. He loved, And he still loves animals. And then I was away in South Australia filming Wanted and I get a phone call one day from Zach and he goes, guess what, Mum? I'm going to be an actor. And I was like, put your father on. <laughs> what happened? And he went, out, he went out for lunch with his dad while I was gone. And they had, you know, the man-to-man talk and his dad said, well, what do you really want to do? And he said, well, I'd really love to be an actor, but I can't study for that. And, of course, dad went, yes, you can. 
you can go to university, you can go to drama school. So he's in his third year at drama school now in Wellington in New Zealand, and he's doing really well. He actually just finished a small role in Under the Vines 3, which I just finished filming. He had a small role in that, which he auditioned for. I stepped back and said, I'm, I can't say whether he's going to get the role or not, but he did audition for it and he got it. And he's loving it. He said, Mum, it's when I feel alive. I keep saying, have you got a backup plan? He goes, I don't need one. <laughs> did your mum, Shirley, say that to you? Have you got a backup plan when you... No. She didn't. No. <laughs> no, mum was awesome. Mum was just like, wow, isn't this great? <laughs> but I think mum's also, mum's such a great, you know, she's also one of these people that very much live in the present because I think mum, this is how I've got all this stuff that I've, you know, the wisdom because mum holds no grudges and mum had a really bad, she had a shitty life. I mean, she had a, an abusive father and then an abusive husband and she has forgiven all of that. She has let it all go. She has more compassion and she really does live in the present. You know, and she's taught, she's teaching me everything. She still teaches me today. She goes, darling, at 80, nearly 89, she said, I still look in the mirror and I go, when did that happen? Because she said, inside, I feel like a 40-year-old. But my body's failing me. But she said, as you get older, you'll realise that. You'll start seeing all these physical changes, but you don't change on the inside. So make the most of it today. That's, yeah, that's good old Shirley. I love my mum. What a woman. And... <laughs> You talk there about her compassion and that is something that I marvel at because when you would experience something like that, I would find it very hard to let go of the pain and resentment. But the only, th you know, the only person that's hurting is you. That's the problem. It, no matter what happens to you, the person that's done it to you, if they've done something physical to you or emotional to you, they've gone. And hanging on to the hate and the anger towards them is doing nothing for them because they're not, they're not in your life anymore, but it's doing a lot to you. You have to get to a place where, like it was, I did with my dad. My grandfather took a lot longer because of what he'd done to my mother and, and also my sisters and me. Letting go of that was hard, but I still managed to do it. And I was able to go, you were a sick human. And what had happened, what something must have, terrible must have happened to you as a child to turn you into that adult that you became. So I was able to forgive him and let that go. Because at the end of the day, we're all the same, you know, we're, we're all connected to the one source. We all come from the same place. As Kerry Armstrong says, we've just got different costumes on. That's all, but we're all the same. Beck, that shows though an incredible amount of grace, the way you talk about your grandfather in that way, because he abused your mum and he also tried to sexually abuse you. Yes. And, and with my sisters as well. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't a good human. But again, I, I've had to kind of come to terms with the fact that he was sick because only sick people do that, sick, sick individuals. And I, again, if I didn't have a faith in something other than this, I think I would have struggled. But I do have a very strong faith, which also allows me to let go of stuff because I just hand it up. I go, oh, I, can't do, I can't do this on my own. And that's not to say I believe that there's a white man up in the heavens with a big stick who casts judgment. I don't. I think I believe in source and I believe in spirituality and I believe in goodness and kindness and also about higher vibrations. I believe if you hang on to that, that bad stuff, anger, hatred, grief, misery, all that stuff, it's just bringing you down. As I said, not doing anything to them. So let it go. Just let it go. It's hard because of the pain. You go, that caused me a lot of pain. 
but also let go of the pain too. It's in the past. It's not there anymore. That's, you know. What a woman you are though to, to do <laughs> that. I am. I'm just normal. <laughs> but you, you know what? I don't like that word normal. Uh, there's this great quote that the only normal people are the ones you don't know very well. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're all flawed individuals. That's what I mean. There's just various degrees of flawed, you know. And again, you see, that's what we love about you is you share those flaws and vulnerabilities with us and that makes us all feel understood. Oh, that's nice. And human. That's lovely. It does. Oh, good. Well, that's what I think that's what we're here on the planet for, you know. I think the other thing is that we're here to love one another. I mean, Jesus was misunderstood because Jesus, when he came, all he, he said, love one another forgive one another and don't judge one another. And if we all did that, could you imagine the planet if we lived like that, if we actually lived like, and I think any religion in its purest sense, that's what it's teaching. Non-judgment, compassion, love, forgiveness, kindness. We've lost a lot of that. And I think if we all live like that, you know, we wouldn't be seeing a lot of the tragedy that's going on in the world. So if the world was full of Rebecca Gibneys, that's... It doesn't mean that I don't get grumpy at people. It doesn't mean that when someone cuts me off in traffic, I don't, you know, I still I still have, or if someone's rude to me in a shop or whatever, I still get a bit grumpy. I'm not perfect. I'm, you know, ask my husband. <laughs> I stub my toe, I swear. I mean, I, um, but yeah, I just think the big stuff, you just don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat it. It's too hard. Life's too short. Now, your husband, Richard Bell, who's also an incredible creative, you asked him to marry you. Yeah, well, that was, it, it was kind of a joke because we were filming together. He was the production designer on Halifax and um, we'd been working together for a couple of weeks and I remember saying, are you going to ask me out or what? And unbeknownst to me, he was actually, he just started seeing someone that just dating, nothing serious. And so he kind of was avoiding me a bit. And then one day at lunch, I yelled across, I'll never forget it was on my mother's birthday. I said, will you marry me? And he kind of glanced up and then looked at his shoes. And then when I got to, into my trailer at the end of the day, inside a phone case, because I'd asked if I could take my phone home, inside the case, he had written the answer is yes. But we hadn't even had a date. So, oh. <laughs> so then the next day I said, well, if we're going to get married, you better ask me on a date. So we went on a date that night and uh, we've been together ever since. Yeah. Oh, it's such a beautiful love story. And I saw him in the This Is Your Life with you because he doesn't like attention, does he? He doesn't no. like, he's very much a behind the scenes guy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, look, he's, and he's one of the most talented, creative individuals you'll ever meet. I mean, he was a production designer, but he's also an artist, a painter. He's, I mean, he can do anything. I'm so lucky because he can fix anything. He can cook anything. He can sew anything. He's one of these people that he's just he could do everything. Like he's extraordinary, super smart, very, very funny and my best friend. So I just feel like I hit the jackpot. I'm so lucky because we just, we love each other to pieces and we get on incredibly well. So yeah, I'm lucky. Oh, I have a thing about luck. I think you make it. I think yes, that's things true. don't just land. No. You work for things, you do the work. You get, grab those opportunities and you don't let those special people and special moments pass you by. 
Oh, absolutely. And that's not to say that we haven't been through our hard times as well, particularly in the earlier years. I mean, just getting to know someone and spending time together. And there were hard times over the years. Like there was a lot of compromise involved and a lot of communication needed. And again, letting stuff go that at my mother's words keep ringing in my ears, it's better to be kind than right sometimes. You know, we've, our egos get out of control sometimes when we're having arguments and you're just wanting to win the argument and go, even if you're not right, you just determine to win it and you've got to actually step back and go, is this going to matter in five years? Really? Is this going to matter in five minutes? Like, again, let it go. Because all you're doing is just raising your, you're bringing all that stuff onto yourself, the stress and onto yourself. It's not worth it. Not worth it. Again, there is Shirley. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. Better to be kind than right. I'm going to use that. Yeah, it works. I mean, it works because it also makes you step back for a minute and just keep the, you know, the argument or question or whatever. I'm, is this kind? Is it truthful? Does it matter? Really? Does it matter? I mean, when the world is the way the world is at the moment, where does the wet towel on the floor that maybe it's been happening 10 times a day for them, you know, where does that fall? Or where does the mess that the person leaves by? Really, is it that important? It's not important. I'm going to say that to my husband because I'm a terrible <laughs> mess. I'm, I have piles of crap everywhere. So does my husband. So does my husband. That's why I have to, in my head, I have to go. I have to let it go. Not worth it. Scale just, of one I'm, to ten. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that to him. I'm like, Petey, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. <laughs> it doesn't. No, it really doesn't. And again, uh, another thing too, I'm going to bring Shirley up again, your mum. I love this thing. When she was asked to describe you, the first thing she said was ordinary. Yes. <laughs> She'd been saying that to me for years. I think that was, do you know what? Initially, that was one of the problems I had with imposter syndrome because I went, she's right, I'm just ordinary. I'm just ordinary. I'm just ordinary. But then I'm actually embracing the ordinary because we're all just ordinary in some way. We're all, it's like, we can be magnificent sometimes. We can be awesome sometimes. We can also be shitty sometimes. We can be not very nice sometimes. So it's ordinary somewhere in the middle, which is fine. I'm quite happy. <laughs> Being ordinary. God, it made me laugh when I heard it because I just thought, don't we just love our mums sometimes? They just, you know, bring us down. Exactly. (laughs) Yep, yep. Put us back on the right level, you know, just back there. Well, because you know what? I think that's probably why I've become relatable to people because I am an every woman. I am just like everybody else. We all are. This is the thing. This is why you don't treat anyone any differently. You've got to treat everybody the same, whether it's the parking attendant, the person in the shop, the director, the queen, doesn't matter. They sh- we should all be treating everyone exactly the same. You know? And was that part of the reason too, Beck, why you didn't decide to do Hollywood? Because you did go there. How was ordinary? The- <laughs> <laughs> no, not ordinary. <laughs> no, but that's how I felt when I went. I did. I actually went there. I was 26 or something. And I remember walking around Hollywood going, I'm way too ordinary for this town. <laughs> oh, no, it's never going to work. Because I, I would see these cutouts of Gina Davis and back then it was, you know, Susan Sarandon and all these extraordinary people. And I just went, I'm, I'm not that. I can't do that. And why would I leave a thriving career in Australia? What a stupid thing to do. I just get, you know, in my head. 
I went, what's the, what's the point when I've got such a great career in Australia and I'm so lucky that I've continued to work in Australia? I'd, I wouldn't have it any other way. Who needs Hollywood? Yeah, but also as well, what I meant too by that question was you're very much from talking to people, whoever you work with, regardless of what their title is, you treat them exactly the same. Whereas yeah. with Hollywood, there is a pecking order, which oh, yeah. you weren't comfortable with. Yeah, totally. I think some Hollywood stars, when they come out to Australia and they work, they're kind of expecting certain treatment. And they some of them, I think, get a bit taken aback by the fact that they're not treated that much differently. Yes, you, you know, you're given a cup of tea and a chair and a trailer and you are kind of looked after. But in the same breath, you're not God, you're an actor. Like we're actors and we're no more important than the person that brings you the cup of tea or the second assistant director or the camera operator or the costume designer or like we're all part of the spokes on a wheel and none of us could do the job without the other person. And I think that's what that's what's great about Australia and New Zealand in that sense that we're like, you know, we could all band together and do it. But no, you know, you're good, but you're not that good, mate. Like don't, you know. Yeah, and that's that's not the way it operates in Hollywood, as as we all know. And obviously, you've had a lot of sort of brushes with Hollywood people. And I mean, Tom Cruise, I would love to know about that dinner party where you were seated next to Tom Cruise. Jane Kennedy was on the other side. That would have been quite a night. Yeah, we kept pinching each other behind his back. We would go to the bathroom and go, oh, my God. She didn't know what was happening either. It was literally, I was working with Temuera Morrison on a telly movie in, in Sydney and he was good friends with Sam Neill, who I hadn't met at the time. And he said, oh, Sam's having a barbecue after work. Do you want to go? And I went, oh, okay. I said, I, do I need to go home and change first? He was, no, nah, no, nah, it's just, it's just relaxed, casual. So I'm literally in <laughs> jeans and a jumper, taking half my makeup off, thinking, <laughs> oh, you know, I'll be casual. Actually, no, I left my makeup on. Thank God, I left my makeup on. And then we knock on the door and Sam's wife at the time opens the door, Noriko, and she had on this beautiful long red silk suit. And I'm like, okay. And then as we walked in, I could see Tom Cruise, Ewan McGregor, Brian Brown. And I'm like, I turned to Tam and I go, what's this? He goes, oh, I didn't know. doesn't matter. <laughs> he's like, who cares? doesn't matter. You look great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> But you know what? It was actually, uh, it was amazing because we, there was just this dinner party with these extraordinary people who, again, I sat down next to Tom who was married to Nicole at the time and just lovely, very down to earth, madly in love with Nicole. Everyone else, they pulled out guitars. We ended up singing around the table. But ordinary, normal people, just lovely, nice, normal people. Yeah, but Jane Kennedy and I, because we're such great mates, we would, you know, go to the bathroom together and go, oh, my God. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was hilarious. But, and so much fun. And Sam, anyone that knows Sam, I mean, he's the perfect host as well. But again, very down to earth, very lovely, normal human who has time for everyone. Just like you. Just yeah. like you, Nick. Yeah. I'm not Tom now, Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to be Tom Cruise. No, but do you remember like, that? There was an ad. There was an ad with a oh, stay with the home. lamb. Yeah, the lamb. We have roast lamb or dinner with Tom Cruise. I think we had lamb that night. So I remember going, I got to have both. <laughs> <laughs> I had oh, roast no lamb way. and dinner with Tom Cruise. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> it was fun. It was really fun. Because, yeah, Naomi Watts had done that ad a long time yes, ago. Yes, she did. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Okay, folks, here we go. We're going to dial the winner of our Dinner with Tom Cruise competition. Hello. Hello, Julie Rankin. Yeah. Nice work, Julie. You've scored a dinner with Tom Cruise. <laughs> yes, a stretch limousine will take you to a top city restaurant, then a romantic dinner, just you and Fantastic. Tom. Fantastic. When? Tonight. Tonight? I'm oh, sorry, I can't. What? What? Mum's doing a lamb roast. Oh, great, yeah. Um... I hope you realise I gave up a dinner with Tom Cruise for this. Never mind, love. You can go out with him any night. <laughs> we're going back, like, we're going back 21 years, I think. That's a long time ago. No, 22 years. Very long time ago. Gee. Now, we've been talking a lot about different roles that you've played on screen, and you're now in Prosper. And, yes. oh, I love it. I've watched the first three eps and great. it's so good. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I love it too. I'm very, very proud of it. I mean, it's essentially for people who I highly urge our listeners to get on board, Stan, and have a look at Prosper because it's a wonderful series about a evangelical family who've built this extraordinary empire, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. Tell us a bit about your character. Well, Abby Quinn is the matriarch of the family. She's kind of the woman behind the man. On the surface, she seems to be the woman behind the man. She's very supportive of her husband, who's the the head pastor. But as the series continues on and certain characters start to unravel, like onions, you peel back the layers of every single character and you discover things about them that you're not expecting. Abby is layered and she ends up having to sometimes do things that uh, makes her question her faith, uh, makes her question everything, makes her question her marriage. But it's also about what you're prepared to do to protect that, to protect your marriage, to protect your family, to protect your church. And I love it because this isn't a show about we're not having a go at faith or the church. Every single character in the series has a very deep faith, a very deeply rooted faith but they're also deeply flawed. And that's what I love about it is you may not always like what they do, but I think as you watch the series, you will understand why they're doing the things that they're doing. And that's very, very clever writing. It is. And as you say, it it develops over time and the complexities of the people, they're not just sort of stereotypes because Richard Roxburgh plays this very charismatic preacher and on the surface you could think, oh, I don't know about you, but but he's got his demons too. Absolutely. And I think there's no one else that could play this role the way Richard did. I mean, Richard, I think, is one of Australia and in fact worldwide, one of the best actors um, in the world. He's, it was such a privilege for me to work with him because we hadn't worked together for many years. We did Halifax together like in 1997. So it was joyous because we're such great mates as well. Just to watch him, it was like a masterclass and every day being on set with him because he's astonishing. He's so charismatic. But when he does go to his vulnerable dark place, as an audience, you sit there going, oh, my God. But, yes, you have done these awful things, but, oh, my God, I understand it now. It's Yeah, I think, again, it's very clever writing but extraordinary performance from Richard. I loved it. But everything you're in, I love. Oh, bless. (laughs) And, of course, that's why you've been such a success for so long. You're a draw card to whatever it is you do. People are like, oh, what to see you do it. That's lovely. Again, I think it's because I'm ordinary. <laughs> I think <there's> a, <laughs> I'm relatable. And I love when I was, um, when I did rafters and, and I was for the period crowned the mother of Australia for, for a while there. And I, that was such an honour for me, more than any other role, to actually be called that and to have people just come up to me in the street all the time, Julie Rafter. And I relate to her because she's so ordinary and she, but she's dealing with, 
ordinary situations, the whole family is dealing with ordinary situations and, and it's completely relatable. And I think that's why I feel like I'm lucky to still be around is that people are able to look at me and go, oh, I could do that. You know, it's just like when I created Wanted with my husband, I wanted people to watch the show going, oh, I want to be in that car with those ordinary people. That's why one was a checkout chick and one was an accountant because I wanted to create a show about ordinary people that everyone could feel like that could be me. So I, th- I feel very lucky that people feel like that about me. And as you say, for that particular character that you played in Wanted, you were also very adamant that you wanted to just wear minimal makeup, shirt, jeans, that yeah. women could look at and go, yes, that is me. I, I don't have to look, you know, be the bombshell and the this and the that to be a star of my story. Totally. And Lola actually was me uh, when I first wrote the character of Lola. It's actually what I was when I was 12, 13. So Lola is just a grown-up version of what I started out as. So, And I felt, which is why I loved playing her so much, because I'm a hoon behind the wheel of a car. I was able to drive all the cars and wanted myself. I didn't need stunt drivers because I just loved it. And I love getting around. I mean, I'm in jeans and bare feet now and I, I don't wear makeup at home and I am, you know, I'm a tomboy. And I'm actually embracing that more and more as I get older. I love it. I absolutely love it. So let's just talk briefly then about a bit more about aging. As you get older, you're saying you're embracing more and more. Isn't that interesting who you were as a young girl and a teenager? You know, we do that full circle. You mentioned before about embracing that inner child, but becoming comfortable in our skins with who it is we truly are. Totally. And look, and that doesn't mean that I don't want to make the most of I'm the product queen, you know. I'm still going out there getting the potions and the lotions and getting the facials and getting my hair done and all that stuff. I still love all that because I still love, you know, making the most of it. But I'm also not hard on myself anymore. So I will have the hot chips or the glass of wine or the cheese. And, you know, and I'm getting to the point, I'm going to be 60 this year. It's like, wow, I've been on this planet nearly 60 years. How lucky am I that I'm in pretty good health? So, I don't indulge all the time now because I'm realising that the hangovers last way longer, but I'm still, you know, just letting myself be who I am. And it's, yeah, it's great. That's awesome. Well, it's freeing, isn't it? Yeah. And also what I realise more and more is we do have a finite time. Yes, we do. And you want to make it count. Absolutely, because, um, you know, someone said to me, I think we should live every day like it's our last. And I went, no, live every day like it's your first. Like it's your first with joy and wonder. Imagine that's the first time you've seen a cloud. Imagine that's the first time you've stood in grass. Imagine that's the first time you've had an ice cream. How extraordinary. You know, I think you enjoy it more. If you're told it's your last day, I think you become a bit more self-absorbed and like, oh, what what am I going to do? Whereas if it's your first, everything becomes a wonder and a joy. The people you meet, everything becomes joyous. So um, that's another thing that I try and do every day. Just go, oh, look at that. Look at that flower. Look at that rose. Look at the, you know, whatever. I don't do it all the time because, you know, I'm still, I can be a grumpy old woman as well. But <laughs> it's, I try to make it my mantra and I try to wake up every morning going, thank you for giving me that rather shitty night's sleep. It doesn't matter because I'm still going to go out there and be, because I'm here. I'm healthy. I have a beautiful husband, a son. I have, I have so much to be grateful for. Yeah. Well, we are grateful for you. Thank you for the wonder that you bring us, these words of wisdom. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Tell me just finally, what is ahead for you? You say you're going to be 60 soon. What do you want to be doing? 
my husband and I dream of we we had a boat when we were um when we were first married we had a boat and we both love being on the water so that's our dream one day is to have another boat uh, we gave it up because our son got sick of going being forced to go on it every weekend <laughs> so I would like to be on on the water somewhere maybe with a nice glass of wine um just living life I've got you know I've got a few couple of projects coming up that I'm attached to which I'm very excited about can't talk about them and hopefully under the vines is coming out again. Hopefully, if people like Prosper, we'll get to do that again. But again, I'm like, whatever's coming is meant to come. That's the other thing. I, my, my mantra is, what is for us will not pass us by. So if it's meant to be, it will be. It stops you stressing about stuff. You just go, if it's meant to come to me, it'll come. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. That is a beautiful mantra. And Zoe Ventura, who you worked with on Pack to the Rafters. Oh, I loved her, yeah. She shared that as her mantra with us as well. Oh, good. Well, there you go. It's a good one because it means you stop stressing. You stop striving. And, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have goals. It doesn't mean you don't work to, go, to move forward to your goals. But you just keep going in the back of you. You manifest it and you, you think, what is for me will not pass me by meant to be it'll be have faith beck thank you so much for you, sharing with me and our listeners i just i want to give you the biggest hug oh, well same <laughs> because you you are sunshine in a bottle you're like pure fizz so it's very easy to talk to someone who is so open and so kind and so generous you it's very easy for me to be open with you because you are genuinely a beautiful human it comes through in everything that you do so i'm right back at you Oh, I tell you what, that means so much to me. It means the world to me. And just thank you for sharing in the way you have. And I'm grateful for you. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm grateful for you too. So go and have the best day. (laughs) I will. I'm going to go out and live it like it's my first. There you go. And go and have an ice cream. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yes. Messina ice cream is my fave. Perfect. I always get go. two scoops of ice cream. Perfect. Again, life is too short and I eat exactly. chocolate in bed while I read my Kindle and I love it. Exactly. <laughs> See, perfect. we kindred spirits, mate. Kindred spirits. <laughs> How extraordinary is Beck? I mean, she says she's ordinary, but she is extraordinary. So much wisdom in there, so much love. There's so much that I'm going to take with me today. I'm going to think about that idea that her mum taught her, about how it's more important to be kind than right. I'm going to bring that into my life. And also, let's live each day as if it's our first, to be joyful, to look out, to really think about what is out there as opposed to what is inside of us. Oh, Beck, I've loved talking with her. I really want to be her bestie. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be wonderful just to sit down, have a glass of rosé and chat and imagine the sorts of things that you would share, discover, laugh and learn about from this incredible woman. Now, we can't all be her besties, but you know what? You can watch Rebecca in the brand new original series, Prosper. Now, it is streaming on Stan right now, and it's a drama, and I absolutely loved it. It's set in the inner sanctum of an evangelical mega church, and it's really about this family, this very powerful family that Beck is the head of, and you see all of the sorts of things that happen when 
faith and ambition collide and it threatens to tear this particular family and church apart. I really recommend it. I loved it. You can watch it on Stan right now. Now we have so many incredible guests for you this year on the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. I love hearing from you all. I love it when you contact me via Insta, when you respond, when I post different clips from the show, and also when you come up and have a chat with me on the street. But I really want to grow a podcast community. And the only way that I can do that is if you spread the word, if you subscribe, and you also get your pals to subscribe. It is free and it means that all of these great conversations will be quicker for you to access in the app so you will never ever miss an episode. And as I said, it's a way for me to really connect with you. And then I can hear from you. You can let me know what you learned, who you would like to hear from. And if there's someone in your life that loves Rebecca or is curious to get to know her better and also you think might learn from her wisdom. I know I've learned so much. All you need to do to share this conversation is simply tap the three dots that are on your screen and then you can share it. Get your friends on board the Jessro Big Talk Show train. Toot toot, hop on board the train. And if you enjoyed this episode with Rebecca, I think you will love my chat with Hugh Sheridan. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. I just don't label myself anything but human because I can change my mind at any point. And that's what makes humans special. That's what makes us individuals. And I think... So many of my friends have been straight and then they've been gay and then bi or whatever. But I just sort of go, well, you're just human. You can change your mind at any point. And I lean into that. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.